Cinderella, Sunny Stella, running amidst the trees. Who's there? I said as I stood in my head, and nobody answered me. This is Bruce. This is John. And this is Blix. Welcome to another edition of the Fringeworthy Podcast. Continuing our series on packing for success, we are now going to talk about vehicles. And we're not talking about any vehicles, but we're talking about vehicles that work on the Fringe Pass. Those of you who are unfamiliar with Fringeworthy, the Fringe Pass have some very strict requirements because electricity does not work on the Fringe Pass. Therefore, most of your internal combustion type engines won't work. This was a a big problem back when they first started to explore the fringe pass because each platform is at least 47 miles away from the next platform. So there's considerable distances involved in going from platform to platform to explore through the portals that are on those platforms. So being able to travel effectively and and without using an internal combustion engine, at least the kind we're used to, would be a big challenge for the early technical services for IDET and the international teams. Starting at the beginning of the exploration and moving on through four or five years into the the timeline of the IDET exploration, we're going to talk about what vehicles do we think would most likely be discovered and be useful and how they could have been used and any caveats about their effectiveness versus other ones. The first one, human-powered vehicles. John, why don't you tell us about bikes? The first practical, useful vehicle was a set of uh, mountain bikes used by the first team to travel to the, to the uh, pocket stop. Uh, later on, they switched over to touring bikes because touring bikes are actually better designed for long-distance traveling. They actually are heavier frames and have a longer wheelbase. It makes them easier to uh, control on the pathways. But basically, the, this is straight human-powered, 12-speed up to 24-speed bikes, once you get them going, they'll take you up upwards around 12 to 15 miles an hour down the pathway. So, it yeah, it takes a couple hours to go down the pathway, but you can do it uh, within just a few hours. John, why is this so easy to travel along the fringe paths on a bicycle? It's flat as a pancake. The, the pathways do change their surface as something moves across them. So something moves across them faster, and the surface changes to provide more traction. So it actually becomes easier to pedal down the path, down the pathways at higher speeds than it does at lower speeds, because you get so, you're getting more traction off those wheels. John, if I'm um, playing a clown, you know, because it's like one in every hundred thousand, so it's quite likely that I might be playing a clown or a mime. Yeah. Could I have a unicycle in the French path? Sure, you won't. Of course, you'd be carrying everything in your backpack. <laughs> Probably wouldn't be that efficient, but it would be funny. Yeah, but yeah, if you're seeing touring bikes for for some of these folks, they're loaded down with lots of crap. You actually can carry, I'd say, about three times your normal carrying capacity with uh, with a touring bike than you would if you had to put it on your back. 
Well, you could carry a lot more than that, John, because you could also be towing some kind, one of those tripod-type outrigger things behind you as well. There are modular bikes, which you can put together and make a bike train. Uh, I, haven't, I actually have seen a bike train. They're some of the watches that go on by. But that's a lot more mass. That's a lot more things you got to move. So top speed there is maybe 12 miles an hour with a bike train, where an individual touring bike with no trailer, you can probably hit 15, maybe more if you're, if, you're, if you're in good shape riding the bicycle down the pathway. When we talk about a touring bike, uh, we're also thinking about something that we're going to be able to use off the fringe path as well. It's not designed to be just purely a, a fringe-worthy, people-moving type device. They ride touring bikes everywhere in the world. I mean, touring bikes are, go down dirt roads. They go up hills everywhere. They're just simply designed to be more comfortable for long-distance traveling on a bicycle. Not only that, but you're talking about the French Pass, so there's a lot more money involved in this. And with IDET you know, footing the bill, you could have touring bikes that would be – you know, more expensive than a normal person would ever be able to afford. You know, you might have a $5,000, $10,000 bike because it's built out of the best components, carbon fiber and titanium. The bike is super light and super strong, yeah. you know, more efficient than anything that you may have ever seen because most of those bikes would not be cost effective to build right. except yeah. on the French Pass. And you could be wearing some kind of a suit that's made out of a really slippery fabric to reduce your wind resistance and things like that. That's true. You have specially designed bags, too, you know, because standard uh, touring bags are kind of big and bulky. But I can see them designing bags that actually are more aerodynamic shells for the uh, they go over the front wheels and the back wheels to help uh, reduce, the, reduce the drag. Now, there's another type of um, <clears throat> uh, person powered vehicle that's gotten a lot of notice in some of the alternate energy things and that's this thing called the human car and what this is is that this is a vehicle that's sort of got the same layout as a normal car except that it's got four rowing stations on it essentially you you sit back to back and one and you go back and forth and and produce basically through this rowing motion you accelerate your vehicle and there's two sets one on each side so a total of four people would be able to row at the same time and uh this this has a lot of advantages in the fact it has four wheels therefore it's much more stable if uh somebody got hurt you'd be a place for you to let them lay down you know only one half of you really has to be working at the same time so one half of them could be rowing while the other half is resting so it, it would be a way of going down the fringe path and getting a pretty good speed up i mean it's, it's top speed is still really not more than about 15 miles an hour but if you start going down a hill then now you can travel you know if you're off the fringe path and you're onto a world where they have roads of any sort, you can still use this vehicle and travel up to 60 miles an hour just by essentially just going down the road using the steering mechanism, which in this particular case is, is just leaning. So it's, it's just like being on a bicycle with just there's four of you working together. I personally would be happier if they had a, um, a more of a traditional steering mechanism, but they wanted everyone to be able to to be rowing at the same time. Hey, Bruce, you know, that, that makes me think of the, uh, you know, those old movies where they have the, uh, you know, the train tracks and they have the two guys pumping right. that, uh, that piston like thing. Well, I mean, you throw a guy up front who's actually steering it. 
Um, so you have three people. You have a, you know a guy who steers and brakes and all that, and then two guys who who pump it to to make it move. And you you know, and of course you would use lighter materials. You'd use you'd use more modern materials than than that. Right. Uh, and of course it would have like probably rubber wheels and such. But you know you you could create you know a. a a car out of that basically but it would, i mean it would only really be good on the french pass right uh, th- this vehicle because it uses regular tires and things like that it actually can run off the french pass yeah it's it's a, a prototype it's a, it's a concept but if they wanted to use this method it would be more stable than just being on top of a bike hey uh, you know what you know what that would be good for that'd be good for the very first survey teams the teams that actually go to the world's and aren't really supposed to make contact or anything, they actually are the first people to go through the doorways, you know, go through the portals. Mm-hmm. So they're not planning on taking a vehicle through the portal. They're literally the guys who go through, send a wind-up through, test soil samples, test atmospheric conditions, you know, listen for radio waves and stuff. They're not a crew that's actually meant to make a long journey through the portal. They're, all they really care about is getting to it, doing their science, and coming back. So right. that kind of vehicle would be perfect for that kind of team. I mean, like really perfect for that kind of team. Right. Yeah. It would also be a vehicle that could be handled by, let's say, a lower tech society that went on the fringe paths and wanted to be able to travel around. They didn't want to bring um, uh, they didn't want to bring horses for the reasons we've talked about on Earth shows. And that, you know, uh, this kind of a rowing vehicle, you only have to feed yourself. You don't have to feed the vehicle. Yep. And uh, you could travel around with this. You might not go very fast, but you go at a constant rate. You could trade off. You could go great distances. It might take you a couple of days to go five or six platforms, but you could do that. And oh, you sure. could pull along quite a fair amount of, of stuff because, as I said, the platforms are very flat. Therefore, there's all you have to overcome is wind resistance and rolling resistance. Yeah, right. And. And, well, and then human endurance, too. I think the Victorians would be a great device for them. Yeah. Right. We're going to get to the Victorians. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I know, they have, I know they have steam, but I'm just saying that this would be another alternative to steam. The fuel source is you. It is really not unrealistic for a person to walk 10 miles in a day. And I'm not talking about, like, stressing you. No, no that's um, easy to run. That's, that's, well, an easy, that's an easy walk. I can walk if, four miles in an hour. Right, yeah. and if you've got wheels, I mean, you know, you could cover that 50 miles easily. You could do one platform a day, and you could bring enough food for, you know, 10 days for each person fairly easily, you right. know, on, on a vehicle. Yeah. So it's it's really right. very doable. Mm-hmm. I mean, Sayuri so walked 40, the 49 miles to the, other, to the other platform in a day, but it took her sure. all day to do it. Right, and that I mean that's killing you to do that. I mean that, yeah. that that's a rough walk. I'm talking about you know these people being able to do this in a leisurely fashion. Right, mm-hmm. and this vehicle only half of the crew has to actually be rowing at any time, actually propelling the vehicle at any time. So half of you is resting, and so you could trade off every 15 minutes, so you don't get there exhausted. You could literally run this thing 24 hours a day if you had to. If you had to, sure. Now we're covering the very early days, so right, yeah. and that and this is no, you know, for, for oh. those of you playing the game, this is no like set amount of time. Whatever you consider the early days, when you want to move into another time period, that's up to you. It could be a year, it might be two years for your game. This is like the very start. So if you want to start your campaign, 
in the very beginning, these are kind of vehicles that they're going to start with because they haven't had the innovations to say, well, you know, electricity doesn't work. You know, I mean, the first car they took out there, the first Humvee they took out there turned into a giant iron brick. Yeah. And they had to think of, well, what do we do now? You know, and, and somebody said, well, why don't we just walk or take bicycles or. It was Gordon Conrad who said bicycles because that's what he was. He's a bicycle messenger. First thing in his mind. And we know that the old men walk. Yeah. Right. So some people who are fringe walkers, they like to walk. They don't mind the distance. And they don't mind hitchhiking either. And if you talk to any army guy, you know, any infantry guy, you know, he would say, we'll just march it. It's, yeah. just, it's only 50 miles. We can do that in a right. day. <laughs> right, right. And, and infantry guys, they'll, they'll do that every day. Yeah, so. and, and it's cool. There's no hot sun shining on you. That's an easy walk for an infantry guy. There's yeah. no sunshine on you. There's a continual breeze that's mm-hmm. mild. Mm-hmm. You know, the temperature is perfect. You know, it's it's not that big a deal. Yeah. It just depends on whether you're actually trying to get anywhere with any kind of speed. That's when you run into problems. Yeah. Right. Let's move on to our second option, which is flywheel energy storage powered vehicles. Mm-hmm. Now, there's two different types of flywheels. I mean, they they actually perform the same function, but there's two different possibilities. One is a big chunk of usually iron that spins uh, flat uh, around, and and you spin it up by a variety of means, either by hand or by some you know kind of methodology. You get it on the fringe pass, and because they're so flat, they just cause you just basically tap into this and you just roll along. Uh, and there are a number of ways that you can power up a flywheel, which we'll go into later about how to charge up engines and, and motors of various kinds. The other method is very high tech, and that is to take something that is made out of a, a very tough material and spin it at a really high RPM, like 50,000 RPM, so that it basically gets what's called angular momentum. By spinning around quicker and quicker and quicker, uh, it gains energy. And you'd keep this in like a vacuum container, and you'd have to have some way of, of, of tapping the energy off of it. Um, they've tried doing this in, in real life, and it hasn't been very effective. They, they kept losing the, um, the seal, the vacuum seal, and then, of course, air got in there. With that thing spinning at 50,000 RPM, it almost immediately stopped the, the, the spinning rotor. Oh, yeah. So, Got a little uh, hot. Right. So fly, so flywheels may or may not be a successful method. Again, it all depends on how good you are reducing your rolling resistance and any sources of power you might have as you go moving along. Yeah. So we're going to have it in the, in the show notes, but I don't personally think it's very practical, but it's, it's an idea. And maybe somebody enterprisingly could come up with something uh, a design that actually could get you 50 miles along the fringe paths so you could go from one platform to another. In China, there's actually a set of gyro buses. And they basically, or is it in Europe? I think it's Europe, or in Europe but someone has a set of gyro buses. Basically, they have a, they're flywheel buses. Now, they use electric motors to spin up the engine, spin up the flywheels, but they're good for about half the day before they run out of juice in a, in a city and stop and go traffic. So they obviously have found a way to keep them going for a half day's worth of use. Oh, well, maybe you could find a link to that, John, so we could uh, show that to our our, our listeners. Okay. So are we saying that, that the flywheel is a, is a potential idea, but it's probably something that would either come later in the game, you know, later in your setting, 
or potentially from a more advanced world, like say you go to a cyberpunk type world or, or you know, a world maybe 50 years ahead of Earth currently, that they've got a flywheel to actually work with efficiency. Actually, I think it's the other way around. It's probably going to be from a low-tech culture. It, it wouldn't have like some of these higher-tech things that we're going to be talking about. Yeah. So okay, so maybe maybe like a lower tech culture, or maybe even an, an equal level tech culture that went a different direction instead of internal combustion. Say perhaps it's an alternate world where they didn't discover as much petroleum, or there wasn't as much petroleum for them, or you know biofuels for them to to tap into. So they had to find an alternate way to generate energy. So they found an actual efficient way to use flywheels. The point of the matter is you don't have to know the science behind it. You can just wave your hand and say, on um, you know, in this society, it works. It's not really tricking physics. It's it's just it's a different way to approach it, and that was their innovation. I mean, these are designs that are meant to be in a real city where you're going up and down hills and and carrying people. You know, mm-hmm. when we're on the fringe pass, we've got this flat surface that we know we're not going to – it's always going to be a totally flat. So it, we could theoretically have a whole array of these flywheels going at once that when you add them together, there might be enough power there to go from one portal to another. I mean, one, one, one platform. Or you tap them in series. So you know you're going to get 20 kilometers off of ones. Okay, so that's what, 10 miles? Yeah. So, so you have six of them. It's about 16 miles. Yeah, 16 miles. So you have like six of them in a row, but you only tap them one at a time. Right. So you get 20 miles off, you get 16 miles off of each one as you go along. That could be in, way, way, one way right there. Right. It might work. You know, and, and you don't have to make a flywheel out of steel. You can make a flywheel out of ball sight. You just take a big stone disc and spin it. Yep. You know, as long as you, you make it round, you know, perfectly round so that when you spin it up, it doesn't – it well, stays – you know, perfectly balanced. That's what I mean, perfectly balanced. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the point is, is that as it turns around, it doesn't rip itself apart from centrifugal force. Whether or not you actually would see these off of Earth Prime, probably not. So you know there will be, there'll be some gearheads trying to figure out why that, that Hummer stopped. The flywheel is probably something you're going to find on another world. Yeah. Right. When we do the what if on alternate worlds, there's no reason why some world might not decide, hey, flywheel's the way to go. You know, maybe the air on this world is so bad that the totally have not allowed any kind of internal combustion engine in their cities. So inside the city, you've got all these flywheel driven vehicles that produce no pollution at all. And outside the city, that's where they spin them up and send them back out. All right. That's true. There are other ways of spinning up things on the fringe pass, and we'll get to that a little yeah. later on. Let's, um, let's move on to uh, a neat one, an easy one, air-powered vehicles. Right. And when we say air-powered, we mean air as the fuel. Compressed air. It's actually an old technology because we've used compressed air in one form or another for vehicles for a while. Just that These newer compressed air vehicles are much lighter. They use much lighter tanks that... Don't blow a million pieces of shrapnel if they get over over pressured, and they get good mileage. One of the current ones called an air car can get about 125 miles at 68 miles an hour. So on a platform that could probably translate into maybe uh, 200 miles because you're only doing like 25 miles an hour. Right, and and again we're we are talking about the perfectly flat surface of the fringe pass, yeah. but this is also a vehicle that will run off the fringe pass get to the world you're going or, or you know you stop off at some any anywhere along the way um 
And then you, you pocket stop. Power, yeah, you, you power up your, your compressor, and then psh, off you go again. Yeah. According to what I have here for the uh, French one, which is the city car, it can refill its tanks in four hours. 340 liters of air at 4,350 PSI, which is about what you'd expect in out of, let's say, scuba tanks. That's using these building compressors. They actually have special refilling stations for those cars where they plug in and do them at just about the speed you refill a gas tank on a car. But those are special ones, specially designed for high volume flow. So here's a vehicle that really could take you, uh, from the looks of it, two platforms. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that would be a, a very reasonable thing to use. And you could take a bunch of these. Uh, everyone could have one of their own. And then you get to the world, you can just start running around with this thing. Because it's going to have gearing and it's going to be able to drive over. Uh, if it's, It can't go through jungle unless you have one that, that's built like for jungle. I'm sure they could make an ATV version of these things. These are designed for city streets. But still, the idea of the compressed air engine is perfectly feasible as far as a fuel source that doesn't require electricity. I would say that the air fuel vehicle from everything that, that I've seen on this, and, and we'll include links, but it really seems like a good vehicle for traveling on the fringe pairs. And if you get out into a world where it's easy travel, um, you know, it's, it's going to be good for that. But, you know, like four-wheeling or high-performance, it has to really be geared for that. It has to really be built for that. And then n- now you're getting out of the realms of, of practicality for using it on the French pads and then off-world. Um, it's mostly going to be, a, I think, it's going to be mostly for a, a to-and-from vehicle and then maybe using it once you get on-world, you know, as so long as there are roads to drive on um, or, or at least easy terrain to drive on. I agree with you in, in principle, but this is also a great vehicle in that it doesn't require really any other fuel source. You're always going to have air or you're not going to be able to breathe. Oh, no, no, no. I think it's, I think it's very versatile. I think it's right. a great vehicle. I think no, it's an awesome option. Right. But I, just, I don't think it's going to be your, you know, your four-wheeling off-road or a high-performance vehicle. I mean, I know they, they do make a high-performance version of this, but it's really the high performance version of this is really just for doing that. You know, it's it's not. It wouldn't be a good vehicle for French travel. Well, uh, I, I disagree, uh, Blix, because I, again, maybe not one for us. Maybe maybe not one for IDET. But if you're a world out there that's not us, okay, this is a vehicle that can get you one, two platforms. Any world you go to, let's say you have a solar collector, you can use the power this um, this compressor. Or something like that. You can compress the air. You can get refuel your your vehicle on any world that's got sunlight and it's got air, and then you can keep going. You can literally go forever with this vehicle without ever having to worry about fuel. Because if you go to any world in which you're using other forms of things like gasoline, gasoline isn't just something you just you know pour out of a, an oil well. I mean, it takes very specialized composition. And, and not anything can be used as gasoline, and gasoline goes bad after a period of time. So there are some liabilities to using internal combustion engines that an air-powered vehicle that's as simple a design as this is would be able to defeat. Oh, Bruce, I totally agree with you on that. No, no, what I'm saying, but what I meant by high performance, I, I meant by, by high performance is super fast like racing car type things they, oh, they yeah. do make you know air versions that are that are very fast but that's all they do they would not be good 
literally, if you took them off a road, they would fall apart because that's that's what they're built for. No, no, no. When you say high, when I say high performance, if you're talking about in terms of French worthy high performance, yes, absolutely, this would be a great vehicle. Uh, when I say high performance, I, I was talking about you know like race cars. Um, yeah. They they can be built for that, but that would not be good for French travelers. The same thing is you could build one for you know four wheeling, but I don't think that would be good for you know this is a built specific vehicle, and if you built it for French travel, that would be fantastic for that. But then when you got to a world, you would probably need a road uh, for it to drive it on. You'd have to go to a society where they actually had roads. Uh, I agree. This is this is a high tech. Uh, low power solution. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Okay, well, these are air power vehicles, but there's another kind of air power which we call a wind powered vehicle. These are vehicles that actually use the wind to allow them to move along. And in my research, we had two vehicles uh, that matched that. One is one that just recently won the world record of a wind-powered vehicle which going 126 miles per hour. And this uses the same idea, it's a sail principle, where it's it's shaped you know, like a, a sail and the wind blows ac- across it and causes it to move along just like wind makes a sailboat move along. Yeah, and actually looking at a picture right now, it uses a wing sail, which is why it got such, such good speed. Right, it's a it's a vertical wing that uh, that goes down to, uh, but the rest of it is very carefully shaped to allow it to hold to the ground. And this kind of vehicle would work on the fringe pass, especially going through the big fifty foot portals because that wing is not fifty feet long. This uh, it's, it's another example of a very specific vehicle. Right. Like <laughs> this thing would be, you couldn't take this thing on anything other than a road or or the fringe path, a super flat. Right, uh, mm-hmm. delicate surface. Let's say you you went to a world that was made up like the salt flats. Right, but that's okay. what I'm saying. I mean, you put a rock in the road, and this right. thing hits it, and pow! Right, <laughs> right. Well, yeah, you're eating dirt at, at 126 miles an hour. Anything that you know, vehicle would probably plow into something. But <laughs> right, <laughs> the the wing design actually makes use of the fact that as the wind blows. Across the wing, you get you basically you get the good old Bernoulli principle going, and you get thrust from that wing. And yeah. Bruce, you want to tell us about uh, air currents on the French path? Yes, I'll, I'll do that. Both these vehicles that we're talking about, and the second we haven't mentioned yet, take advantage of the particular air, uh, aerodynamics that are on the French path, because the French path has gravity only on top of the platform or on top of the roadways. Okay, air is pulled down toward the platform, over top of the platform, and then when it gets to the platform, it then moves outwards where it goes off the platform and then into a zero G area for 93 feet where it runs into, to us it's immaterial, but to, to air it's like a steel wall. It's a, some kind of an interface that the air won't go out. It's like a force field, and that forces the air to go upward. It's kind of like a rolling donut of air coming downward on the inside and rolling outward on the outside. This air coming down and then moving across the platform or from the center of the fringe path out to the edge is a constant breeze. And because it's a constant breeze, moving 90 degrees to the direction in which you want to travel is perfect for creating this kind of thrust. 
and because it is constant, we know you can, you can build uh, wind-powered engines to take advantage of it. The second vehicle is what's called the Vento-mobile. And what we really have here is a big fan. And, uh, and the wind, as it goes through the fan, it basically causes the fan to spin. And the fan is attached to some kind of a, uh, uh, a, drive, yeah. a, a drive system, which goes down and drives a set of wheels and rolls you along. And this kind of device, this uh, the, the big fan that's on the Ventomobile, could be put on any vehicle. You could even attach it to a traditional vehicle uh, on top of it like a luggage box on the top of your vehicle. You could attach a couple of these things on there, and the wind blowing across the fan would cause it to drive uh, some wheels attached to the ground and roll your vehicle along the fringe path. I'm not sure how fast. From what I was able to see of the vehicles, they didn't move very fast, maybe five, six miles an hour, but it's constant. You never have to worry about running out of, uh, out of wind as you travel along the fringe pass. Yeah. Actually, they have a link. We, there's a link to a race they plan to do with these vehicles, so I'm going to try to get that link out. Economy uh, of scale works out very well. The bigger the fan, mul- multiple fans, you, know, you get the power of the wind going through each one of them. You can uh, you can add you know sequentially add more power that way. Still, I don't think you're going to get more than maybe 10, 15 miles an hour out of this out of this particular method of propulsion. But it's eternal; it'll never run out. You can just roll forever. <laughs> and you can also use this on the platforms as a method of producing a torque to run like a small machine shop or a pumping system. If you wanted to have, let's say, a toilet that actually had running system going through it, you could flush a toilet, you could you know, turn a lathe, uh, anything like that. You could actually run the front of it using this fan to basically turn it around. I would not want to use the term perpetual motion machine, but just like the wind uh, off certain parts of, of the uh, Africa and South America where the wind just blows constantly toward the land, making uh, this would be a, a perfect method of rolling your vehicles along with very little effort. But it has the same problem that Blix already talked about. You're not getting anywhere very fast. And if you've got some place to go, this is not going to get you there in the speed you want to go. But, but realistically, when you're, you're playing Explorers, yeah. <laughs> unless your game is high adventure and your characters are you know <laughs> really impatient, it doesn't matter. You know. Mm-hmm. It, the the people who travel down to the the Antarctic, you know, today under normal circumstances to do studies, they spend months planning things out, and then they take forever to get down there, and they take forever to set up, and they don't, you know, I mean, if you're just doing science, science doesn't care about time. It takes the time it takes, and you do your studies, and that's where a lot of hand waving happens, you know, in gaming. Yeah. If you're playing French worthy, and you say, all right, well, it takes you guys a week to get there. Who cares? You know, yeah. it takes you a week to get back. Whatever. Yeah. The only thing that matters is it doesn't take the players that much time. No, right? They don't care. You, you just say it happened. However, where it really comes into play is okay. You guys are being chased by French pirates, and they have figured out how to get you know an internal combustion engine running on the French pass, and they're chasing you. Then you might care. And you're in the, the rowing car. 
Right. <laughs> you might care then about how long it takes you to get where you're going. Right. But but the point of the matter is is that a lot of the stuff we're talking about now is, you know, it's not time dependent because for the most part, IDET doesn't care about time dependent because, you know, they're doing scientific surveys. You know, whatever time it takes is what it takes, and that's fine. And from a gaming standpoint, you just say, okay, a week later, you guys are on this world. You don't even care about how you got there. Who cares? Yep. You know, you're not worried about that. You're just worried about getting there. So, you know, you can you can wave all of this. You can even just say, oh, you guys have vehicles. You don't even have to say what kind of vehicles they are. It doesn't, you know, it, it cannot matter. <laughs> Although, for most fringeworthy players, it will matter because most fringeworthy players are interested in this kind of thing. Right. Yeah, th- so. this, this is about having fun with uh, how you get places. And also... Understand that in the beginning, you're not going to have any of these better methods of getting anywhere. So this is just a method of you just successfully bringing a, a big pile of gear with you, and reasonably so, without having to say, "Well, we we lugged it behind us in a big cart, you know, a big big red rider, you know, um, a wagon, <laughs> or stuff with it." This isn't just a solution for the for the people from IDET. This is something for you to say, hey, this world that we're going to, they're fringe aware, and this is how they've decided to explore. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe there are no fringe pirates around here, and so they don't have any of these fears. You know, so you can have some, see some cool stuff. You know, all these these pretty uh, vehicles going around with their little ductless fans, you know, <laughs> blowing them along the fringe path. Now, speaking right. of blowing on the fringe path, Bruce, you came up with a great idea, which I think, which I, which is actually only possible because of the redesign we did to the uh, platforms. Let's talk about flying to the next portal. Right. There, there's two methods of doing this. One is the more traditional method of using a sailplane, otherwise known as a glider. You see, two-person glider has a wingspan of about 18 meters, which is about 36 feet. Now, if you take this uh, this glider and you shove it off the fringe path or off or off the portal, uh, I mean the platform, uh, you'll find yourself in a space that's about 93 feet wide. Plenty of space. You're only about a third of the width of this. And it's got a constant air current rolling upwards because we talked about the air going down, going out, and then going up. Well, you can, just like a thermal, you can let this plane be carried up high, high above the platforms or the fringe path Thousands of feet. And then, because of uh, the fact that the gravity is pulling down in the middle, that air is slowly going to be pulled toward the center to where the gravity well is over the pathways or the portals. And your glide plane will go over the fringe path, and you'll be able to start flying along just like you would in a, in a regular world, just taking advantage of that gliding over the air. If you don't reach the other portal in time, you get down near the bomb, you just can off to the right or the left, back into that zero gravity area with the rising air, float yourself back up again. Uh, a good glider pilot would actually wouldn't let themselves get all the way down to the bottom. They would just go down a certain distance, fly out, go up a little bit, then can back down. A, a sort, John, you mentioned like an S pattern back and forth yep. over the French Pass, taking advantage of this. And yep. you could travel faster using a sailplane then you could possibly travel with a regular vehicle down those fringe paths. Now, the important thing is, though, you want to land before you go through the 50-foot ring because the landing distance for a sailplane is a lot longer than 600 feet. 
Unless you wanted to go go straight through and hit the other fifty foot portal at the other end of the platform. Yeah, I, I, first off, you want to have good piloting skills for that one because that's called stunt flying. Yes. Uh, <laughs> very good piloting skills. I agree. Yeah, and as as I mentioned, don't forget when you're on the when you're going down the pathway, you don't have to stay on the top of it. You can go underneath of it as well. So you could drop down, go underneath, and swing around to the other side and come back up. Because gravity works on both ends of the platform, on both ends of the pathway, so you can canter over and sort of do a spir- do an outside spiral around. Right, you could you could literally do spirals around this thing and use gravity to uh, to to literally power a lot of your flight. And of course, your passenger will be using the barf bags too. On top of that, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, but let's yeah. not forget. <laughs> If you're going to use this method, your characters need to be experienced pilots. This is not for a novice at all, because otherwise you're going to spiral off into that void, and that's going to be the end of you. Yeah, once you go outside the atmosphere, there's nothing for you to get back with. I mean, it's zero atmosphere. You're in vacuum. You know, your your lungs are going to bleed. You're not going to like it. And, <laughs> and there's no way to get back. You're and another, done. Yeah, and another 43 feet, boom, you disappear in a big flash of light. The point of the matter is, is that the room for error is very small, and screwing it up is death. Oh, speaking of screwing it up, how about the other way of going down the platforms flying, Bruce? <laughs> yes, those is a glider wing that you could put on a person. Uh, the flying squirrel suit. And using the same principle, really. I mean, a sailplane is a much more efficient and well-designed thing to, to, to go traveling, but you don't have to. You can get one of these glider suits, float yourself up, and then do the very same thing using this, this little suit that catches air and allows you to glide along. And you just do the same thing where you flip around and you, you, you dodge the, the, the roadway and you float back up and you do it again. And the nice thing about it is you're not walking. <laughs> you're flying you're flying and and for some people that would be worth it you know no, no matter what you're trying to do and and don't let john scare you about that whole thing about you know precision flying and stuff like that if you're a pilot you're used to doing that precision flying is what pilots do well in this but case the squirrel suit you actually give me you have to be a precision parachutist though yes well <laughs> uh uh, according to the information we've gotten, the slowest anybody's been able to fly one of these things is about 26 miles per hour, which is basically right above the stall speed, which means that if they made any mistake at all, they're falling. They're not flying anymore. And so uh, – but they travel – they can travel up to 200 miles an hour, mm-hmm. uh, obviously for a fairly short period of time. So these things can really rock. They can also be used as a kind of a tactical thing if you want to race after somebody – uh, let's say you have decided to, to establish some kind of airborne uh, assault force uh, against fringe pirates or something like that. Well, the fringe or if pirates, you, or if you are the pirates, so somebody comes on the fringe paths and you just dive out of the sky toward them. They never see you coming because you're you're wearing a black squirrel suit versus a uh, black studded star space. Uh, they can't see you, and you're zipping in at 100 miles an hour. You got all the elements of prize you could possibly want. Yeah. Now, now, Bruce, the the question I can see coming now is people are going to say, okay, well, so how do you get into the air? I mean, how do you get started doing this? Once you step off the fringe path, that air goes out 
across the fringe path and then starts rising once it gets out because it goes out and it hits that force field that keeps the air from just dissipating into the vacuum. And it has to go somewhere. It has to go up or it has to go down. But because the air is being pulled down in the middle, that creates a current upwards. And that will just carry you upwards. Now, to be most efficient, you might want to have like a little parachute to grab more air to pull you up faster. If you lay in the water on a raft and the wind blows against you, it'll push you along, but not very fast. But if you take a big sail, then the wind's going to push you along the water much, much faster. Much in the same way, you're in zero G and the air is going to push you upwards depending upon the surface area of your body. So the, the squirrel suit is going to give you more surface area because that's what it does. It creates a sort of a, it creates an airfoil shape around you. But if you have a small parachute, you could capture a lot more air. It'll pull you up faster. And then when you get as high as you want to go, then you just drop one side of the, of, of the parachute. It The air falls out of the middle. You just roll it back up, tuck it away, and now you're ready to, to go flying again. So it's actually a much better way of getting yourself up to speed. And this is what the daredevils are do. You put on a pair of roller blades uh, while you're wearing your, your squirrel suit because you need to land anyway but you need you have a pair of roller blades you get yourself started you, you start skating as fast as you can and then you dive off the side put it wings out inflate they inflate and now you start flying and then you may actually want to dive under to get a pull from uh, from the platform underneath or the pathway underneath to get you some extra speed and come out the other side. And basically, you just want to spiral, spiral around the platform, getting speed by dipping into the gravity every so often. Well, that's what I was thinking, John. I, if yeah. it was me, I would literally I would literally dive off the edge. I don't even think about the rollerblades. That's a good idea to get up some momentum. But you dive off the edge. You go into a dive because you got inertia and you're in, you're, you're in zero gravity, so you're just going to continue in that direction. Then you pop your wings out when you've got enough, you know, distance on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, glide over into the gravity field on the underside, so it's going to pull you up towards the underside of the, the either the platform or, or the or the um, uh, pathway. Of course, you skid across so that you miss it, so you don't smash into it. <laughs> Come up around the other side. You're now moving at whatever you know your falling distance was. So you know, 32, 64. Um, you know, 96 uh, miles, you know, miles per hour, come up around the, pop up around the other side, and now you know you're really, now you're really trucking, and you could, you could whip around this thing in a, in a spiral pattern, and you could build up, you literally could build up a an lot. insane amount of speed if you really wanted to, if yeah. you're really talented. Um, but you guys remember. You have to, you have to slow down. You got to stop. Right, yeah, I know. I know. I know. Yeah. You don't want to go too fast. Right. And these suits do have a, have a certain amount of wind resistance to them. Right, right. But the point of the matter is you could you could build up speed pretty quickly. Right. Yeah. So what you're talking about is some kind of a yo-yo kind of, of uh, speed increase by, by dipping in the gravity well, missing the roadway, and, and therefore taking that acceleration, that speed increase, and then using that to carry you on the other side through the zero-G area, mm-hmm. further up on that side, then turning around doing the same thing until finally you get as far as you can just using um, the acceleration of gravity, at which right. point if you want to go higher, then you'd have to rely on the upward draft of the air. Right, right. You only have 49 miles to do this in, so really enjoy yourself, and then when the last 10 miles – Go vertical, make yourself as a big wind block as you can to slow down. <laughs> slow down, right. While you're still in zero yeah, G, because then you can actually slow down to speeds where you can actually survive landing at. 
at that point. <laughs> with your twenty six miles an hour. Yeah. Because yeah. if you if you come through the portal and now you're on a platform, you know, you gotta remember things have changed. You're now on a big circular disc and everything over that circular disc is gravity. You know, earth gravity. So when you pop out of that thing, if you pop out at a really high speed and you you know, you zip up in the air, you're gonna come crashing down at you know, at the speed of somebody falling. So you're gonna want to get your speed down to as low as possible. Yeah. When you you know even close to stall speed. Right. And I think the rollerblades will come in handy because when you come down, you can come down in a rolling motion and, and absorb the, the uh, the impact. I would actually do it while we're still on the I'm still on the pathway, so I actually access some distance I can actually roll and not worry about rolling off the platform in the process. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. And let's not forget, doing this is daredevil stuff because if you screw up, you know, you can go spiraling off into space into the void and. Oof, or, or slamming very hard against a a very non-giving surface like the the fringe pads is made out of metal it right. doesn't give at all yeah remember remember gms <laughs> when people first tried this and they've never and they've never done it before it's 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 a dc30 you know thing to try in d20 <laughs> <laughs> but if you're if you're using a system that really allows you to have you know really outrageous type stunts in it, then this is something that you'd really have fun with. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll never forget. When you get to the end, you know, and you got the ring you have to go through, if you miss the ring, done. Yeah. Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. the end of you. You'll be traveling so fast, there's no way you'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> right. And there's no going back. There's no getting back. You pass the ring, mm-hmm. done. And at speeds you can get to, you, you're basically going to run out of pathway long before you realize you're running out of pathway. This is a very cool idea for French pirates. I, I can do, I can see the French pirates using this like crazy. Yeah, have the flight of Valkyries playing in the background. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's fun. But now we were talking about Victorians, so we're going to probably the the other way of getting around the platforms, which will be used by a lot of folks, and that's steam power. Right. The Victorians, since their technology is based around 1890s, that's what the timeline on their world is, they're just coming into their full knowledge of steam. And their technology, I mean, most of their engines and their industries and things like that all work off of steam engines. They, they have very good ability to manufacture, fabricate, and repair steam power devices. They were steam buses, steam lorries. Steam power does have some problems. Uh, the Victorians on the platforms use a fairly open vehicle to travel around in, uh, and it actually has its four-wheel drive, so they can and they can operate the wheel each each wheels independently of the other wheels, so they can turn on a dime if they need to. <laughs> so that's something to keep keep in mind on. They actually have a specially built vehicle for running on the fringes. One of the problems with uh, steam powered vehicles is water. Unless you unless you have radiators, and we're talking lots of radiators, on your vehicle, you basically run out of water in about 20 miles. And why do you run out of water, John? Because it's not recycled. The steam is vented out through the pistons. So you need a system that recycles the steam and recondenses it. Steam is basically your fuel. Yes. You will run out of water long before you'll run out of coal or oil to uh, run the boiler. Natural gas, butane, whatever you want to power it with. But the good thing about the French Pass is what we've been saying all along is the fact is since they're completely flat, mm-hmm. okay, you can actually have a very big tanker 
that you can pull along behind you with a lot of extra water in it. Mm-hmm. So you could actually go a considerable further distance than would normally be, you'd be able to in a vehicle that was designed for traveling around an English countryside, up and down hills and things like that. Though I would imagine we probably would be looking at some sort of radiator system to recapture that water because just, well, practical. You may end up going to a world and there's no water. Oh, great. And we had the water in our water buffalo to worry about, about 500 gallons of water. And then it, the biggest thing drinking water at that time would be your steam engine if, you, if it's not recycling. So I would still imagine that the steam vehicles would be recycling. That is, they have a set of radiators. The steam, instead of it just being blasted away from the vehicle, it actually gets collected into a tank where the radiators cool it down so it's no longer steam, it's water, and therefore it can be recycled around and reheated and used again. Yep. The, the so, problem is, is that you have to be able to reduce the temperature quickly enough for the steam to not cause back pressure and basically keep the pistons from working. That's correct. So are we saying that, that the fuel source is the minor portion of this, like whatever you're using, coal or wood or <laughs> exactly. whatever? That's a minor portion of it. Cow farts, that's actually, you know. That's actually, that's actually way less than, yeah, you could use canned methane. Why couldn't you use pressurized methane? Yeah, but That's correct. Exactly right. We have a link for building a steam car in a day. So these guys that, you know, uh, as a challenge, they built steam cars, as you were talking about, John. Mm -hmm. And so it's possible for people with some good mechanical engineering knowledge to be able to build steam cars. And I, in my campaign, that was the very first vehicle we made, not human-powered, was a steam-powered vehicle. And it was a real kludge. I mean, we had one guy who was metering the fuel into the to the combustion chamber, and, uh, and somebody else was, was keeping an eye on the water supply, and somebody else was steering. You know, one was fine, and so it was. It, you know, it took all it took three people to run this thing, and and they petered along at about 25, 30 miles an hour down to fringe pass for just a couple of platforms, and and the first time they ran into the fringe pirates. The, the fringe pirates <laughs> laughed at them. <laughs> they, they said, said, go find something better. <laughs> and so, so let's get this straight. So what you're saying is, is that the steam engine can be small and yep. it, can be, it can be very useful. But the downsides are that it takes like a crew of people to run it. If it was a good design, it would, it would run by one person. Stanley Steamer is a great is a, is a great example of a of a, of a well designed steam powered car and it would get it was comparable with the vehicles gas powered vehicles at the time in terms of speed and so forth. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is is why not use steam vehicles exclusively because they, otherwise they sound pretty decent you know really small engine. Right. The, the main problem is, is you have to get past the whole problem about carrying the fuel, being able to, to have an engine design that will allow you to not use an enormous amount of water. Yeah. If right. you can okay. get past that, then steam engines are, are, are very effective. However, the, their top speed is considerably less than the top speed of an internal combustion engine. One thing steam engines do have, and that's torque. You can pull your, your, your standard metric load of stuff with those suckers, you know. <laughs> From a standstill, a steam engine has all the torque it's ever going to need. It can pull off very easily. It can go right up hills. The gearing that you have to do in a, uh, in a reciprocating engine, like a gasoline engine, is nothing. They don't even worry about that sort of thing. 
the biggest limitations are carrying the, the fuel and the complexity of the engine to be able to do that, yeah. and also the slow warm-up time for the engine. Right. So for the Victoriana world, this is a very realistic option. Yes. And it's, oh, yeah. And it's quite, it's quite usable. Oh, yeah. There's actually several existing. I'm at the uh, Steam, steambus.co.uk steambus website, which actually has a, large, has a great little history thing. And it actually has several steam vehicles in London during the 1900s, which means there probably would be very steam vehicles they could probably just make use of. Uh, you know, ship down to the Congo and take on the platforms at that point. Right, but I mean, my point is that the, for the Victorian world, that's that's a really realistic option. That's probably a lot of what they're going to use. And yeah. while it's not the greatest vehicle for them, it's perfectly valid. And if there were not have been other options available on our own world, we might have very well de have developed really superior steam models and we would have had steam engines going along today that would be able to compete with any vehicle we have today but the fact is they were eclipsed by other vehicle designs for some right. of the very reasons we were talking about if you were talking about like a steampunk type world even like you know like a, a more modern steampunk type of world you know, they could have used materials like maybe they discovered carbon nanotubes or something. So they've got like this super, you know, futuristic metallic metal that they got super conducting metal for heat. Sure. I mean, or they just leave their engines running when they're when they park them. You never know. Uh. <laughs> or like in Savage Worlds, they have Ethereum. Maybe that's one of the you know super properties of Ethereum that that you know it, it will never crack and it heats up instantly or right. you know. On the show, ice truckers, okay, they never turn off their engines because if they do, their engines will freeze. There's lots of different worlds where you might have engines that run continuously, so something like a steam engine would be fine. And most boilers will allow you to have a variety of fuels. So it doesn't just have to be the very specific, you know, high-test gasoline that we're used to in our own cars now. It could be moonshine. It could be biodiesel. It could be dried manure. I was thinking about various kinds of oils that are gotten from rapeseed oil, um, olive oil, sesame seed, sunflower seeds, oil. It'd be nice to follow behind a sesame seed oil. I bet it would smell nice if it was burning. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, in the Victoriana world, whale oil. That was the source of oil back in the you know, oh. 1900. But you got to remember, though, we're talking England. At that point in time, coal was king. So, oh, coal they, is and, king, yeah. Yes, and and, that, and creating coal oil was one of the industries. Coal oil and coal dust, both of them are very valid fuels. Right, right. and there's a whole liquid coal thing. But anyway, yeah. Bruce, tell us about jet-powered cars. All right, well, we're talking about a gas turbine, okay? Yeah. And there's two different ways you can go with this. You can literally put a jet engine on a vehicle where you're spinning this thing around and you're blowing superheated gas out the back and you're just rolling yourself down the fringe path with, with a jet engine on the top of you like you're in a scene out of Men in Black. Mm -hmm. There's no reason you can't do that. As long as you got the fuel, like I say, it's perfectly flat, it'll go along. However, most of the time when we talk about gas turbine engines, we're talking about something that actually sits inside the hood. You can then go and take that piston uh, that's attached to, and you can get a mechanical energy off of it. 
gas turbines are used to run gi- uh, giant ocean liners. They're used for all kinds of things. They're not just something like uh, for jet engines. But there is that one limitation about what you said, igniting. Unfortunately, right. most gas, most jet engines and most gas turbines use spark plugs of some right. sort. So, so you'd have to come up with some other method of, of doing this. Either you'd have to have a gas en- a turbine that you never turned off, you just throttled down to a really slow speed, or you'd have to come up with some other kinds of thing where maybe used uh, uh, chemical points where you, you had two materials. Well, like say, is it sodium that if it's exposed to air, uh, ignites? Oh, yeah, yeah, sodium. Well, uh, actually, water, actually, water will cause it to burst into flames. One, well, one actually, maybe, it's, maybe it's metallic potassium. And one of these things, you, you, if it's exposed to air, it suddenly ignites. So okay. you could have, like, a, a small wire of this that gets slowly uh, at, you know, pushed out you know, and then ignites the fuel. And then once it's ignited, it'll keep on going on its own. Actually, um, uh, I'm going to night school, and I happen to be taking a chemistry class at the moment. And anything in that first column on the periodic table will burst into flames if it's um, exposed to oxygen. Uh, they they have to keep it in an oil. So uh, pure sodium, you know, pure uh, lithium will burst into flames uh, exposed to oxygen. And especially so if you throw it in water. This would be a design that would be designed specifically for the fringe pass because in the rest of the world, I mean, you, you would use electrical ignition because right, it's yeah, safer, more that. reliable. So this would have to be something designed for the fringe pass itself, but it's still within the realm of possibility. And mm-hmm. for a uh, more mature fringe culture, if they decide to go with the gas turbine, it, it produces a heck of a lot of thrust and torque. And you could power big vehicles and at high speeds. And as I said, if you wanted to run your vehicle down the fringe pass at 200 miles an hour, putting a gas turbine jet engine on the back of it isn't the worst way of doing it. Yep. And Actually, you know, I hadn't even thought of that. But, you know, you could have a chemical plug. Like instead of a spark plug, you could have a chemical plug. And you could use elements that readily ignite when exposed to oxygen or, or water, for that matter, or even even like a low level of friction, like mag, you know, using magnesium. You know, it it can introduce magnesium powder into a high friction cylinder, which would cause the explosion, which would drive the cylinder. So, you know, it doesn't have to be your standard electrical. It could be a chemical re- chemical reaction engine. Like I right. said, uh, you know, using hydrogen peroxide it's a mono as a monopropellant. You mix, you basically just run it past some uh, silver or platinum screens, and it decomposes into oxygen and hydrogen and wa- hydrogen and oxygen makes water. You get a steam right. engine. <sighs> Back in those uh, steam power days, they had these devices called governors, which by spinning around, they were able to control the amount of flow and keep mm-hmm. things from getting out of balance with each other. So such a thing could be designed for a uh, gas turbine-type engine. Well, thank you once again for joining us for the Fringeworthy broadcast. We hope that the equipment that we just discussed uh, will be helpful to you in your campaign, at least make you aware of some of the options you have. Uh, We hope that you survive until our next podcast, and we look forward to seeing you then. Until then, this is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Blix. Remember, bullets speak louder than words. 